Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the second episode of my Safe Bet show. I'm honored to have Brian de Rochewal as my guest. So she currently serves as Vice President of US Policy and Strategic Development for the great, if not epic, if you pardon the pun, epic risk management. Prior to that, she was the legislative director for the National Council on Problem Gambling, and her experience includes a decade of leadership in advocacy, public policy, government affairs, communications, and member relations. Her experience spans a wide range of work with executive and legislative branch officials and private sector stakeholders at the international as well as US federal, state and local levels of government. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the show. Hey, Martin. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Fabulous. The pleasure is entirely mine, and I'm sure that the audience will share that sentiment. So, if I may, I would like to kick this off. If you don't mind telling me, what was it like growing up near our shared spiritual home of Foxborough? What was Boston like at the time? And if I may also ask, what's your earliest gambling-related memory, if there's one? So it was incredible growing up in small town. So I'm actually from a town called Bellingham. It's just two towns over from Foxborough. So growing up, we were always around the stadium, out to dinner, out shopping. I may have just been there this past weekend and took a few pictures. And the excitement is palpable. Um, it's no secret that Bostonians and New Englanders are avid uh, fans of their sport, other their local sports teams. And so it's always an exciting time. I went to high school, actually, in a town where a lot of the Patriots fans, uh, excuse me, Patriots players reside. And so you never knew who you'd see out and about. So um, it was wonderful. And it's always fun to go home and, uh, you know, get a refresher and go around. Um, my first memory of, of gambling actually didn't have anything to do with the Patriots. I'm really sorry about that. Um, uh, but it is something that I talk about quite often nowadays. And um, I used to get lottery tickets in my stockings, my uh, Christmas stockings. Uh, so, so that was uh, kind of my first memory was scratching those tickets as a little kid. Not so good, everyone listening. Don't do it. Do not give tickets to your kids. Uh, you know, my mom and I have chatted uh, since <laughs> now that I know. But yeah, that was my first gambling memory, Martin. That's that's good to know. And at the risk of all the Packers fans of this show switching it off right now, I would I would take it that you might not have necessarily won anything on those scratch cards and in the in the lottery. But I completely echo the comments that uh, this is something that only people of age should be doing. Moving on to 
a matter or a topic that is uh, much more pertinent for this show, or irresponsible gambling, you have spent quite a lot of time with both the Massachusetts Council on Game and Health and, of course, the National Council on Problem Gambling. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you've done some fantastic and awesome, awesome work there. So I'm sure everybody would love to hear a bit more about it, what were the top ranking the most successful projects that you guys at the council have managed to to launch how did you help all the folks out there but also at the same time ha has there been anything during your respective spells with the council that turned out to be a bit more challenging and perhaps any lessons you would have learned from that experience oh good question so yeah, I started off in 2013 with uh, the Massachusetts, well, it was known then as the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling, um, where I served as the first ever um, director for government relations. And my portfolio was handling both matters with the state, um, both at the state house, um, with the gaming commission, the regulator. Um, and really, I was proud to be able to work on some of the very first and formative problem and responsible gambling policies. You'll have to remember at the time in Massachusetts, there weren't any casinos. Um, the massive casino expansion bill had only been passed a few years back, and it was still very new in its development of what these um institutions and operations and policies would look like. And so I was really proud to be able to work closely um, with the public health department, with the gaming commission to help formulate those very um, structured and now considered uh, national best practices by way of problem and responsible gambling. Um, you know, another thing that was really exciting to work on and really helped me move over to the National Council pretty seamlessly was that uh, Connecticut, a neighboring state, was actually in need of some supports for their council. So the Massachusetts Council had gone over and we had said, we're here, happy to help. So I was actually acting as director of policy for both entities, really giving me my first taste to how different the states are and their approach to legalized gambling and how important it is to have an appreciation and understanding for the market, um, both by way of just gambling in general, as well as problem gambling policy. And then at the National Council, um, where I served as legislative director, I had the honor and privilege of working with the likes of Senator Warren and Senator Steve Daines um, and Representative Susie Lee of the Nevada 3rd District to uh, file a bipartisan bicameral bill trying to address this issue of problem gambling within our active duty military um, uh, for active duty military personnel. Right now, in fact, there's no recognition or support for this disorder. Um, and so those three individuals said, you know, we have to do better. Uh, and unfortunately, we didn't get the votes we needed. So I hope they they go back again and we we persist to to try and get it there um, because our men and women in uniform and their dependents deserve that. Um, so, you know, it's been a crazy few years. Um, it's been an exciting time uh, and I've been really proud and humbled by the work that I've been able to do across the U.S. 
and you deserve a lot of credit for it and everything you've achieved by now is very very commendable and and fantastic from my from my perspective perhaps for the members or of the audience that may not be that familiar with why you would have felt that it was so imperative to address responsible or the problem gambling issues within the military community. Would you perhaps mind explaining that in a, in a little more detail? Because, uh, of course, uh, it's, uh, the approach is largely different uh, here in Europe and in the, in, the United, in the United States. So if you don't mind tackling, tackling that issue, that would be much appreciated. Absolutely. So it's twofold, really. Um, the first and foremost being that the Department of Defense actually operates uh, over 3,000 slot machines on our bases across the globe. So um, anytime a service member and their dependents are moved uh, abroad, they'll have access to a military base. <clears throat> And in a lot of the officer and enlisted club um, clubs, you will find slot machines. And the DOD or Department of Defense is making hundreds of millions of dollars off of our men and women in uniform and their families. And it's also really imperative to have an understanding that uh, our men and women in uniform actually are more susceptible to uh, dealing with or struggling with a gambling disorder. In fact, it could be three times the rate of the general population. And so not only are they more vulnerable, then we're bringing the product right to them. And yet they have no ability to seek treatment or have access to help or even know where to get help or a posted helpline number or tips on how to gamble responsibly. So, um, you know, especially because these are individuals who give so much of themselves and their lives for our country, it's really the least we can do to make sure that we are protecting them and ensuring that they have a helping hand if they're in need. Absolutely. Of course, Senator Boren is a big name at both sides of the pond. So what was it like to be working with her on a, on a project like this? I can imagine that just like with many other projects of hers, she just threw herself on it with all her experience and even more importantly, her energy. That's absolutely right. Her energy, um, her staff's energy is just as palpable. Uh, really, it's a tremendous pleasure uh, to be able to work with her and honestly to have someone of her name and stature here and take the time uh, to hear out why this is so important and to understand that she can play a vital role in assisting those that serve our country every day. It, it's, it's incredible. Uh, every time I walk in that office, I still get goosebumps and butterflies in my stomach. And of course, she's from my home state, so it makes it even a little bit sweeter. Great minds, great minds, and I think that's one of the many reasons why you would have been singing from the same hymn sheet. Moving on to your most recent role with Epic Risk Management, perhaps to start that off for admittedly those few that might not have heard about Epic Risk Management. I, I doubt that there would be too many people, but still, would you mind briefly 
briefly introducing the organization to the audience and tell us a little more about uh, the lift experience method that is of course I know it from my own experience because uh, the Entain Foundation and the Entain Foundation US have been working, have had the privilege and pleasure to have been working very closely with your organization. So tell me and the audience how it all works. What is it all about? Where did it come from? Sure. So Epic Risk Management, it's based in the UK, and we are a global harm minimization consultancy where our lived experience uh, serves at the heart of all of our work that we do. And we have the privilege to work with a variety of stakeholders, both operators, legislators, regulators, um, and high-risk populations such as the, the military, professional athletes, um, and our youth, uh, talking about how to remove the problem from gambling. And our organization was formed from an open prison where our CEO and founder um, was serving some time as um, a consequence of his gambling addiction. And he was faced with a decision. He could go out and move on with his life and accept that he had a gambling disorder or he could ensure that nobody else uh, faced the same situation he did and to change lives around the globe and to help those who maybe didn't realize, um, you know, that help was actually even there or hope. And so all of our work is founded on these four pillars and principles, lived experience. 50% of my colleagues have struggled with a gambling disorder and are now in recovery. And their voice is so important to really appreciate and understand um, how things developed, what could have been done differently, what kind of help was needed, and what worked and what didn't. Research and evidence base. Um, right now, there's so much that we don't understand completely around this issue of gambling disorder and problem gambling and responsible gambling. And so we're always trying to either be a part of and drive or uh, refer back to the research and evidence that does exist to help create the third pillar policy best practices and robust policy, both internal and external, setting those strong foundations and bones um, to create a safe and sustainable environment in gambling, and then our work in prevention, helping ensure that nobody gets to that edge of that proverbial cliff, that people aren't even having to face the addiction. What are we doing to prevent it? And it's an incredible, incredible privilege to be able to uh, serve at Epic and to work for an entity that does so much good work. Uh, we've now done work in 23 countries around the globe and hopefully many more to come. And I know for a fact that the whole industry really appreciates your expertise your team's expertise and, and dedication. Perhaps moving on to more practical aspects of working with Epic Risk Management. Of course, prior to that, you had worked with US and US-based organizations. Now you've joined a British business and knowing your energy, integrity, I'm sure that you would have blended in quite easily, but did you come any hilarious culture idiosyncrasies that you'd like to share? 
Yes. Oh, oh, Martin. Oh, how you know me and the team. Yes, I will admit um, it has been an incredible um, kind welcome to the, the company. And again, given COVID, it's not that either one of us have been able to be together. So everything's happening via Zoom which I believe makes accents a little bit trickier, but let's just say I struggle with, I believe it's Northern England, right, Martin? Is that at the very thick Northern English accent? I may admittedly struggle a little bit. Um, and I do have a little bit of some embarrassing uh, moments when it comes to things like, I'm gonna schedule something in your diary. Uh, it took me about three days before I worked up the courage to ask why everybody wanted to know what was in my diary uh, here in the States. That's something very private and where we journal. Um, and for you all, it's a calendar. So, oops. Um, the other one that happened was, my colleagues love to talk about making brews all the time. Well, I'm gonna make a brew, give me a minute. And I thought, I mean, I know it's really early here, but it's still fairly early afternoon there. Turns out you're all making tea or some warm drinks here in the States. A cold brew is a, a beer. So good to know that all of my colleagues weren't serving up beers early on. It was quite, we, we occasionally find ourselves with some little differences like that, but it's all good fun and I'm learning so much and, and hopefully all of my colleagues are learning the silly things we say here in the States, like sticker shock. Nobody knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Do not despair. I've lived in the UK for over 11 years. I even carried a passport and I'm still struggling. And actually, while we'll fair a minute, our tea time is coming up. And back in the day, I just couldn't figure out what a tea time was meant to be. So experience taught me. Anyway, going back, if I may, to responsible gambling, because ultimately this is a safe bet show for a reason. I appreciate uh, that most things are extremely difficult to define. But if you were to attempt to define what, in your view, responsible gambling stands for, what you would hope is the end game there and one of the latest themes, of course, the use of technology in this space. So if you don't mind trying to blend all these three questions into one answer. I'll do my best, Mark. <laughs> I think let's start with what would I define as responsible gambling? Uh, frankly, I think it's pretty clear that anybody who benefits from gambling has this responsibility to ensure that the gambling market is as safe as possible. So responsible gambling to me would be the coming of all stakeholders in the gambling world, trying to create robust evidence-based policies to ensure that we are protecting the vulnerable and we are creating the safest gambling market possible. And so that would be creating policies around the encouragement of things like limits, but that's getting into these. So from a macro level, all, all stakeholders coming together to create policies that create a safe and sustainable market, protecting vulnerable populations is where I'd say. Um, your next point, I believe, was around technology. And I believe that technology is absolutely 
able to be leveraged here to create an even safer markets uh, for vulnerable populations, for youth, for those that maybe are in recovery, while we're seeing technology creating incredibly elaborate, wonderful offerings in the gambling space. They can be equally as robust and offering ways to increase communication with customers, letting them know about how much money and how much time they've spent with products, uh, encouraging positive play and, and messages. Self-exclusion can become even easier all at the touch of a button. It's um, amazing the more I'm learning about artificial intelligence and how we can understand player behavior through that. So I think technology is our greatest asset in the RG world right now. I don't believe that we've incorporated it enough into our discussions in the policy space or even in daily operations. A lot of it's been used in innovation for gambling offerings and, and I hope to see that change and to move over into the RG domain. Um, the end game, the end game needs to be to reduce the number of individuals that are currently struggling with a gambling disorder and to ensure that those numbers um, remain low. I don't think, or we know that we'll never abolish gambling addiction or disorder. Um, even prohibition wouldn't do that. But there is a whole lot that we can be doing and more that we should all be doing to protect our customers. And looking at it from a reversed angle, it is needless to say that sports betting in particular, online sports betting as well as iGaming has been lately taken the United States by storm. All the global operators arriving on shore on their own or usually in partnerships. So if you were to agree that this has been a rather precipitous change, what would be your take on how the market has been developing and where do you think it is currently headed? Well, I think it's happened uh, very precipitously past. I mean, at this very moment in time, as you and I speak, Martin, there are 30 jurisdictions, if we count D.C. and Puerto Rico, that have legalized sports wagering now here in the U.S. And PASFA was just overturned three years ago. So talk about a monumental change for our nation. And, and I, you know, online gaming is also the latest and greatest thing here. And Honestly, I'm a little bit worried about the trajectory of the U.S. market. We aren't seeing robust policy considerations for problem and responsible gambling as states are embarking upon these new forms of legalized gambling. And it's really important to note that the foundational bones for problem and responsible gambling weren't that great to begin with. So we're already working at a deficit. And really what needed to be happening was an overcompensation, not only ensuring that there were new dollars, but really having an appreciation and an understanding for how underserved the states already were and how they were going to remedy that moving forward. Um, and honestly, as things stand right now, there's a lot to be desired. I do have fears that there's going to be a monumental backlash similar to what we've been seeing in the UK. And I think that there are steps that can be taken to ensure that that doesn't happen. 
I'm just not sure that the appetite is there yet in the U.S. The dollar signs and the draw for opportunities, uh, it's hard to turn your back on. And I can appreciate that. So, And as, as though you had read my mind, this is a nice segue into my next question, which is about differences and approach of US and UK based organizations, because by now you've had had the privilege of working with both US and UK organizations. So uh, throughout your time with Epic Risk Management in particular, because uh, that uh, would have allowed for proper comparison, would you have detected any crucial or key differences in approach of UK and US organizations in one way or another? Absolutely. Um, you know, and I'm not just saying this because you are on the other uh, side of the screen or the other line. I'm not sure the proper terminology, but, um, you know, honestly, it's the UK operators that are coming over to the states and asking the questions about well, what have you done around problem gambling where are your rg policies what kind of data are you utilizing what kind of investment has been made in the communities to ensure that these people are taken care of really the work martin that you've done with entain and the entain foundation um i'm gonna bring another operator up because i'm impressed and that's kindred talking about what they're doing in the problem gambling space to ensure they're not taking money from those that are suffering harm. Honestly, it's the UK operators that are setting the standard over here in the US. And it pains me to say that I'm proud to be from the US. I'm proud of the gaming establishments we have here. But honestly, you know, this has become a point of contention for some years about not having enough considerations for problem and responsible gambling. And honestly, it's the UK operators that are coming and pushing hard to change those discussions. And, and I hope you all continue to do that. That's indeed our intention. And thanks for your very kind words of praise. If I may move on before we wrap it all up to a final topic, which I hope is rather practical. You're, of course, a very efficient and amazing and a very proud mother of two. And actually, it happens to be the case that uh, your little Charlotte Rose and our little Isabella that you might have just seen pop in behind me, the choice of working at home, were born last year, pretty much at the same time during the pandemic. So if you were to give any advice as to how all this can be juggled, you know, professional career, looking after your family, what would the advice be? To be as fortunate as I am to have colleagues and, um, you know, individuals that I work with to have a little bit of grace and patience. It is definitely not easy, is it, Martin? Um, I am amazed that Charlotte has stayed quiet for as long as she has. Um, Look, I don't claim to be an expert. You're incredibly kind um, for all of those compliments. I love my family and I love my job so very much. And so it just becomes a matter of how to multitask and 
give both uh, everything you have at the same time. So, you know, if I have to turn off my camera for calls um, because someone needs to nurse, that's what we do. Um, and I send my apologies and I'm so grateful for, for those that are understanding. Um, talk about a humbling year, huh? Um, you know, you really learn what you are capable of and you do really learn your limitations as any um, you know, working professional who has a family. And I think at the end of it, we're all gonna be a little bit stronger and hopefully a little bit kinder to ourselves that we're all just doing the best that we can and it's all driven from a place of love. And so having people who are patient and understanding is, is definitely, I would say, the biggest uh, blessing I've had through all of this because I know I... I'm quite helter-skelter sometimes. True words of wisdom. I suppose we also, or we mustn't forget the arguably the greatest living Bayern Munich fan, Eli, your husband, that I've had the pleasure and privilege of knowing as well, because I can imagine that he's been incredibly helpful during this time. That's the thing. And, and oh my gosh, now now you've called me out. Yes, obviously having your... your an incredible spouse, having family to be your rock and support. I mean, we have been both working full time. We have one that was homeschooling. He just went back a couple of weeks ago and for only four days. So we still do it one day and an infant. Um, it has definitely been a case of who can, who can take the baby? I'm on camera. Nope. Who can take, um, our son Nolan and and help him with English. So we definitely have learned how to become a well-oiled machine and team. And, you know, we've only been married a couple of years. So, um, you know, what can I say? Nothing like uh, being thrown in the proverbial deep end and learning how to, how to do it together. It's been, he's amazing. I'm a very, very fortunate woman. <laughs> very far from my intention to try to to catch you out but i thought that it would be worth Hello. mentioning 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 him so my final question and that's usually the unfair one because i'm going to give you 60 seconds 60 seconds tops to summarize all the, as I called it, wonderful words of wisdom that you have shared with me and the audience today. So you have 60 seconds to provide or give key messages about responsible gambling and in particular, harmonization education. So please, you're up. All right, here it goes. We can do better. We must do better in order to create a, a safe and sustainable gambling market here in the U.S. We have to be collaborating more and we have to be doing better. And we need to be relying on some of those principles that I talked about. What is the research showing us? Creating good foundational policies, legislation, regulation, and internal and external corporate policies. And we have to be doing it together because we are stronger and smarter together than we are apart. Brilliant, as we would say in the UK, awesome, as you would say in the United States. Thank you very much for being with us here today, ladies and gentlemen. This was Brian Durashaval, Vice President of US Policy and Strategic Development for Epic Risk Management. I'm Martin Lechka, and this was the second episode of my Say Pet Show.